Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Eat Sleep Worker Pete. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. I hope you're well. I was uh, just reflecting as I was getting ready to to start talking here. I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll share a couple of things that I've done at the moment that have been interesting. And it's an illustration of what a a life bankrupt from excitement that I'm living at the moment. I couldn't think of anything that sprung to mind. In fact, I saw by chance that Curb Your Enthusiasm started at the weekend and I've totally that totally passed me by. So maybe that's what I'll do after I've recorded this. Now, today is a really nice discussion. I always try and tread a fine balance because it's one of those things when you're talking to authors, sometimes you feel unabound to well, basically talk about their book and enthuse about their book. But sometimes these moments where I don't necessarily think that their book is the best thing I've ever read. Marcus Buckingham episodes, that would want, that was one that would spring to mind, um, where you feel, look, you know, there's some interesting stuff in here, but people could save themselves a tenner, 15 pounds, by uh, just listening to this podcast rather than going out and buying it. However, there are some books... May the Rutger Bregman episode be the exemplar of this, where I adored the book and I enjoyed the process of either reading or audiobooking the book so much that I'm like, this would just cheer up someone's week. And today's episode is like that. It's a discussion with Oliver Berkman, who's written this new book that you might have seen knocking around called 4,000 Weeks. It's got two subtitles. Uh, the one subtitle in the US is Time Management for Mortals. And the, the cover there is sort of got some some stenciled icon of someone holding a, a clock aloft. And the impression we're meant to learn from that, I suspect, is, oh, this is an effective time management. In fact, even the, the title has been highlighted sort of like almost by hand by a highlighter pen almost like it was fashioned in the 1990s. Uh, the UK title is something far more reflective, poetic. It's a, an empty bench looking out onto a gorgeous vista of like an, a mountainous alpine retreat with a lake in front of you. And the subtitle of the UK edition is Time and How to Use It. And that's probably a... that cover is probably a closer reflection of the book you actually get. So the, the book and the discussion we're about to have is nominally and superficially about time management. And as Oliver goes on and sort of discusses in the book, you know, sometimes time management can be pigeonholed as, as this 
almost tactical retreat. And Oliver's take ultimately on it is that actually there is nothing of greater importance than where you choose to pay attention, to what what you choose to give your time to, where where your time is invested in terms of your attention. And it's because of that, because of the beautiful, poetic, elegant way he he describes it in a sort of very accessible way and just just wonderful use of words. It's a delightful book. So um, so Oliver for a long time was a Guardian columnist and we talk about how he ended up writing that Gollum column about this column will change your life and uh, how he effectively ended up being a person who pretty much tried every life hack that you might have uh, had offered to you. He tried them, he'd gone through them and it's given him I think it's enhanced his wonderful perspective on life. I really adored this discussion. What a uh, what a brilliant and stimulating read it was, and it's no wonder the book is littered with incredible endorsements on the back. Um, so here's my discussion with the writer of Four Thousand Weeks: Time and How to Use It, Oliver Berkman. <laughs> Thrilled you could join me today. Thank you so much, Oliver. I, w- I wonder if you could kick off by introducing yourself and and uh, describing yourself in the way that you describe yourself. I'm a author and a journalist. I guess I guess I've been a journalist um, for more of my career than I've been writing books. Um, I wrote a column for the Guardian for many years called "This Column Will Change Your Life," uh, which I spent a lot of time clarifying to people was meant to be a joke title or at least a bit sardonic. Uh, and that was sort of focused on all of this stuff that I've always been basically fascinated by and looking for some excuse to focus on, which is what a column constitutes, right? It's a, um, psychology, productivity, psychotherapy, self-help culture, blah, blah, blah. And I've lived in the United States for many, many years, and I we just relocated in the last month or so, at least for, for a year or so, to uh, North York. So, so I... Um... The book is a truly a delight. And in fact, I'll, I'll give you a brief disclosure. The publisher sent me a copy of the book, but um, because I was running a bit behind, I then audio booked the, uh, the, the book. And not only do you have the most beautiful narration voice, like one of the audible professionals, oh, thank you. Uh, but secondly, um, <laughs> the, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a beautifully written book. It's such a, a delight to listen to. And before we sort of go into what the book is about, I just wonder if you could give us a bit of context of how you ended up writing that, that productivity, that life hack column in The Guardian, because it's kind of your refreshing take on those things that makes the book so delightful. So how did you end up writing that column in the first instance? I mean, basically I had, uh, for a long time, had an interest in those books just as a reader and we can go into the murky therapy related reasons why that, why that might be. Um, and then, uh, my editor at the time, uh, on Guardian Weekend magazine realized that it was, a uh, chance to get some content out of me if I was going to be reading these things all the time. And I guess what comes together here and is if I bring something to the party, it's this, it's that like I have this fascination with these topics. I also have this kind of, and I certainly had then a kind of um, skepticism bordering on cynicism about a lot of the messages that are sent through sort of self-help books and in that culture 
at large. It started off with me thinking that I was going to mainly be being like mocking and sarcastic about useless stuff, but it turned out very quickly to be the case that the most interesting part of writing that column was to, to isolate and to identify and to share with a, a probably equally sardonic audience of Guardian readers the bits that actually were surprisingly valuable and wise. And, you know, maybe there is something in keeping a gratitude journal, even though I and you too, imaginary Guardian reader, um, I know your response to that thought when I, when, I, when I say it, but hey, who knows? And here's the research and here's my experience when I did it. And so it was kind of fun in that way. I mean, I think at the beginning, totally, though, there is this sense of like, if it's for work, you can en- engage with things that you might otherwise find embarrassing or, or cringeworthy. I mean, I, I got over that in the end and don't feel that way now, but it was a good alibi. Is that because we sort of have two, two different personas, our earnest, serious work persona, and then the real version of us that we... we reveal partly or or never at all to to our colleagues is it because sort of like you say you were permitted to to think about those worky things well i mean almost with a different head on yeah right definitely i mean journalism is is maybe not a completely typical kind of work but it but in that you know its subject matter is theoretically limitless um but uh yeah there is this kind of it's the excuse for anything, right? I mean, if you're doing something for work, then then there is this kind of sense of a, at least how we've thought about work traditionally, there is this barrier. Um, people don't need to sort of wonder what it says about you that, that you're interested in this thing or that you're writing about this thing um, because it is for work. I mean, it doesn't bear an awful lot of deeper reflection because at least in the ideal case, we choose our work um, because of very deep things in our psychology and um, that they might be healthy or unhealthy things. We may be using our work to find deep meaning or using our work to sort of avoid facing our demons. There's all sorts of possibilities, but but at least on the surface level, when you are sort of a self-conscious person in your, goodness me, uh, late 20s, as I was, when I started writing that column a million years ago, um, it's very helpful to be able to sort of classify it as work, at least initially. As I say, that didn't last. I got more honest, I think, as the column progressed. <laughs> and the book's this sort of wonderful conceit. It's um, this, uh, well, I guess it's sort of marketed or it's positioned as a productivity guide. In fact, the US cover, which is what I listened to, uh, the Audible mm-hmm. one, is far more, it looks more like a productivity yeah. guide. Whereas I, I think the, um, the true nature of the book is is more consistently delivered by the uk cover which is sort of this wonderful alpine retreat and a beach a, a bench looking out onto a lake um, because it's sort of i guess positioned as a productivity guide but it's really philosophy isn't it i mean maybe that makes it sound inappropriate unapproachable but it's it, it invites a, a reappraisal of how we live our lives i mean yeah i'm always fascinated by this genre question because genuinely to me i'm just trying to write the thing that i need to get off my chest and that seems like the thing that it's full of the advice that i need to hear and there's something very natural to me about sort of the, the this bringing of like these hugely deep abstract philosophical questions about how we make a meaningful life down to earth with the kind of 
productivity culture, time management techniques. What what about you know? Are any, is any of this worth focusing on, or is it all is it, or is it all nonsense? So I start from this idea that like time management. When you say that phrase to somebody, like it sounds kind of shallow and small and unambitious and annoying and a bit sort of nerdy. And in fact, I think that's why they use a subtitle in the UK that doesn't have the phrase time management in it, which it does in, in America. Um, but when you think about what that you're, what you're saying in terms of time management, in terms of the fact that our finite time on the planet defines us as completely as it does, like time management is the most capacious, serious, deep, fascinating question that there could possibly be. And like all of life is time management. So I was kind of interested to bring those two things into collision with each other and, and see what happened. Um, I guess it is a book of sort of advice in a way, if not a self-help book in a sort of conventional follow these steps kind of way. But yeah, as I said, a lot of it was advice that I needed to hear. Because there is some very useful and usable uh, advice in there. You know, there's this very clear direction about how you might make some decisions. And um, I guess, you know, the, the thing that really sort of abidingly stuck in my head was the uh, the pay yourself first idea and the, the sort of the notion of um, prioritizing the things that are most meaningful to you right at the outset. So, so there is some very practical advice. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's worth just quickly trying to set out my stall in terms of the broader thesis, which is just this idea that at work, but also in life as a whole, you know, we live in a world of essentially infinite inputs. There's no limit to the number of emails you can theoretically receive or ambitions you can have for your startup or obligations you can feel from your family or your demands you can get from your boss. Because we are human beings, we are we are sort of we have minds that are capable of conceiving of infinity. And yet at the same time we find ourselves in the situation of having radically finite time. Um, and uh, so there is this kind of mismatch between the fact that like what's coming the, the things we could do and feel like we want to do or ought to do are kind of infinite and the amount that we can do is is incredibly finite so that you know deciding to do anything is automatically a decision to not do a million other things with that portion of time uh if you that i, I you know i talk I, I i go on to explain why in this situation of infinite inputs becoming more efficient if that's all you focus on is a real um, fool's errand because all you do is you provide, you create more capacity in your in you for doing more of the infinite amount. You're never going to get through any of these things because they're infinite. So I guess the when it comes to sort of specific techniques and approaches, the the ones that make the cut for me are the ones that lend themselves to looking this reality in the face and making your decisions accordingly, as opposed to what I think a lot of techniques do, which is to sort of help enable a sort of emotional avoidance, a sort of um, uh, inner denial of the fact that we are finite. So a time management guru who promises that if you follow this system, you know, next month or next year, you're going to be totally in control of your time. You're going to be able to do anything um, that is thrown at you and everything that matters and launch all the, you know, realize all the ambitions you might have for your life. That person is basically enabling a, a, a dangerous delusion that I think makes life worse and more stressful and less meaningful. And then the, the, the techniques that say, okay, 
getting everything done is off the table. Being completely in control of things or how, of how the future is going to unfold, all of this is off the table. So given that that's off the table, how do we move forward to sort of pour our time and our energy and our attention into a handful of things that really matter instead of frittering it away, trying to get around to doing everything? And so, yeah, pay yourself first is a great idea. I, in, in the time management context, this comes from a creativity coach called Jessica Abel. Um, obviously, originally it comes from personal finance, where the idea is, you know, when you get your paycheck, take a bit of it and put it into savings and investments right then. Because if you do the opposite, which is to pay yourself last, to sort of pay the bills, spend on what you're going to spend, and hope that at the end of the month, there's a bit of money left over to save, you'll, you'll always be disappointed because the expenditures have a way of expanding to fill the to, to take up the, the money that you have and it's the same with time uh, parkinson's law the idea that work expands to fill the time available so abel's argument is very much in tune with what i'm saying if there's something you really care about to spend your time on uh you you just have to like do a bit of it right now or today and instead of sort of first of all clearing the decks and getting everything else, all the other little stuff out of the way so that you allegedly will then reach this moment of having huge expanses of time to focus on what you care about, you actually just have to do what you care about now for a bit and deal with the anxiety that that triggers because it does trigger anxiety. It triggers the feeling of like, oh no, there's all these other things that there's people going to be disappointed with me because I'm not doing that or I'm, you know, there's more emails filling up in my inbox while I'm doing this. But the art of figuring out what to neglect is the art of being okay with a little bit of that discomfort, seeing it as the price you pay for just being finite. And if you take the other approach, which is like, I'm going to get on top of everything so that nothing is troubling me, and then I can work on what I care about the most, like you'll be, you'll be waiting till the end of your life. And it's, it's it's an interesting notion, isn't it? Because one of the things, the 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 fact that control lives so much at the heart of all of this. One of the well, look, one of the fundamental things that we all wrestle with is is exerting more control over uh, lives. And you know, one of the I I was initially when I was sort of reading, I was initially thinking, well, look, you know, actually the experience of a lot of people who might feel overwhelmed in whatever they do is there the absence of control that we actually end up with in our lives and in our work right now. To some extent, you're asserting the decisions that enact that control are the really fundamental parts of, of how we seek to live our life. These are the, the huge decisions we make. Yeah, I mean, control is a endlessly fascinating topic and really hard to define. And I'm not sure that I'm going to have succeeded in the book or, or will do here in defining it sort of perfectly. But obviously, there are, we each have in our jobs and our work lives to some degree, a lack of control that's imposed by the situation. Um, a person who is being called in on unpredictable shifts to work in a fulfillment center for a mail order company has very little control. But anybody working in a big corporation, even in a high status role, is going to have all sorts of external limitations on their control. And obviously, you have to like deal with that either by finding a way to accommodate it or if you can leaving that position for more, somewhere with more control. But at the same time, there's this internal thing, I think, that we, most of us, especially most of us in jobs where we even get a chance to sort of put personal productivity techniques into practice, there's this internal struggle to feel 
totally in control of ourselves and of our schedules, which includes dealing with all those external things. So, right, maybe you have a bunch of duties in your job that in your ideal world would not exist, but you've decided they're worth it for the job anyway. Okay, your personal productivity system, if you're aiming at total control, has to find a way to accommodate all of those. Then you need a way to, um, you want to make sure that, that the things that really matter to you in that job are getting done so you can sort of advance your career. You've got to find a way of getting on top of all of those. Then there's a way your work fits into your family life and you've got to find a way to stay in control of all of that. And um, if the thing you're aiming for is actually impossible because it can't be done in the time available or because it's sort of mutually exclusive, um, if, you, if you want to spend all your work time uh, deep in thought, but you also want to be completely on top of emails and you get a hundred a day, like there's just a maths problem here, right? It's just like that, that quest for control is going to, is, is destined to be constantly frustrated. So I think there's something, I mean, it's getting a bit existentialist and like Jean-Paul Sartre or whatever, but I think there is something really important in seeing the truth of the situation that you're in and, you know, making the trade-offs, consciously that you were making anyway because like if you're at work for like whatever eight nine hours a day you're only doing eight or nine hours worth of stuff and you are failing to do a myriad of things and the only question is can do you do that consciously or do you keep kidding yourself that you're not really having to make choices and that one day you're going to get into this sort of position of godlike omnipotence over your time because I do wonder if the the reason why the last twelve months has felt especially difficult for people is because we felt less control than ever before, and and the environments we felt we felt ourselves penned into the the uh, our domestic working environment, and we've not been able to enact even the the trivial elements of control that we had before, choosing where to go, you know, on holiday, choosing where to go out. And so the absence of control there. But I wonder if there's a broader trend anyway, that we're just feeling less control in our lives. And so asking these big questions seems to be really important for how we're living our lives overall. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting, totally, I totally think that's right. And I think the pandemic and has definitely sort of hugely exacerbated a lot of this. It's to do with trying to control that which you can't control, isn't it? It's to, and we f- it feels like we live in a world that is so volatile and so vulnerable to sort of these huge life-changing, society-changing things. Like, just as you begin to feel, okay, maybe we're getting past COVID now in some sense. I know that's a, not even necessarily true, but like, well, hang on. You, six months before COVID hit, I had no clue that that was about to happen. So wh- what do I now not have any clue is going to completely uh, upend our lives six months from now. And I think something that I find really helpful with that, there's a long thing that C.S. Lewis wrote decades ago in World War, beginning of World War II about this. But like, it's actually not that we live in more uncertain times uh, or uncontrollable times than before. It's just that for large swathes of our lives and or, or of history, we get to pretend that we are in more control over what's about to happen than we than we really are. Actually, it's always the case that anything at all could happen in the next minute of your life, or the next month of your life or your work, right? It, it's always the case that you don't control the future. It's just that certain big shocks, wars, pandemics, 
really underline something that you'd been sort of trying not to or succeeding in, in not thinking about, which is the sort of, yeah, the incredible vulnerability of each of us to like global shocks and our reliance on other people and our reliance on luck and fate. And, you know, it's just like, it's all there. It's all this kind of ridiculous situation, which is called being human. But there are kind of times when you get to pretend that you're much more in the driver's seat than you really are. And I think we've had that sort of taken from us uh, in the last couple of years. And in some sense, that's, what's the right word? Not good, but salutary. Yeah, but in combination with that, it seems that increasingly figures who offer us some way out of these challenges, these problems of scarcity that uh, afflict all of us, are increasingly regarded as you know, messianic figures. And and you talk about the four hour week, but you know, the, the likes of productivity gurus and, and hustle experts certainly are celebrated. And I don't know whether that's because, you know, in many ways it's, it's the, the modern day bargain of religion that, you know, these people can offer you a better life from, from where you are today. So they're offering you something that apparently seems richer and more meaningful. I'm just interested in your take on these figures who seem to be, have become such a big part of the culture. It's fascinating. And I think that, yeah, at their worst, I've got plenty of respect for quite a few of them, but but yeah, at the worst, that phenomenon is, it does, it is a kind of bastardized religious promise, right? Because it is the promise of not having to encounter the worst aspect of, the human condition when it comes to work, which is our finitude and the fact that we have to make tough choices and we can't control how things go and we're in the lap of fate, and et cetera, et cetera. The idea that you've got like a sort of backdoor way out of that um, and that it would come through this sort of total self-conquest um, that you would manage to sort of be the master of your life. So, I mean, I think that is what explains some of the sort of modern resurgence of stoicism especially in its manifestation that's been called broicism and uh and i think that there is something i think they're not uniquely male but i think there is something you know fairly male masculine about this idea of sort of achieving this kind of emotional and vulnerability where you can where you can sort of quell all difficult thoughts or difficult emotions and any sense of vulnerability reliance on other people reliance on society um I think there's a sort of there's a more stereotypically female version of it, which is to do with wanting to get on top of a sort of unlimited amount of obligations, right? Wanting to excel at work, but while also um, meeting social expectations for running the home and being the sort of main family person, and uh, wanting to sort of meet all sorts of societal standards while also implementing all your all your goals for your life so it has different sort of inflections but i think that the thing that unites them all is this idea of like total mastery of the situation and yeah i think people it's not a huge surprise why people promising that are celebrated it's funny because like at this point it took, maybe i just had to write a column on this stuff for like years to figure out that uh, you know after i'd tried the hundredth way to achieve total control emotional vulnerability and uh, lack of feelings of insecurity that once you've done it, tried a hundred times, you're like, 
maybe there's a problem here and it isn't that I haven't found the right technique yet, but that I need to ask what my motives are. But it's always kind of amazing that there's such a market for like, oh, well, here's the next system. No, this system, this system is the one that's going to do it. It's like, no, because if it worked on the basis that people, for what people want out of it, it would be somehow an escape from reality. And by definition, that's, that's not going to be happening. The thing that really stayed with me as I was, as I was going through it is that by being fixated on getting to-do lists and, and doing things and, and you know, ticking through actions, it, it forces us or it, it, it encourages us to live in the future. It, it obsessively um, anxious about the time that's to come and, and, and not dwell in the present. I wonder if for the listeners, you can explain what I've hinted at there, you know, explain sort of why this obsession with ticking things off might be deeply unhealthy when it comes to actually getting the best out of our lives. Yeah, I mean, there's this problem, isn't there? With It's sort of basic and fundamental to the whole idea of using time and using time well, even though that's something that we all want to do. And I've just written a book about it and Obviously, it's a noble goal, but there's something in the whole notion of use there that puts the focus on the future. It says, like, you know, I'm trying to use my time today in such a way that I successfully meet this work goal, or I successfully advance my career, or even that I successfully look back on my life in a few years' time and say, I had a really fun time. Like, it could just be pleasure-focused. That, that would still apply. In every case, you're sort of, you're trying to do the right thing now for some sort of future payoff. And if you overinvest in that, as I think we do, and I think our economic system really pushes us to overinvest in, you end up like giving no account to the value of time in the present and whether it's actually fun. And you become one of these people that, you know, I have definitely been and I'm to some extent still, where you're sort of constantly working towards goals that, you know, they don't really give very much pleasure when you achieve them. Maybe for a day or a few hours, you feel very satisfied and then it's just onto the next one. So, so you get this very strange situation where life is mainly waiting for these moments of culmination and only sort of incidentally is it the feeling that you have accomplished something meaningful. And then in the same way, if you're trying to sort of get to a place where you're on top of life, on top of things, you're, you've got your future planned out, you, you, you've, you've got a handle on your schedule, because you never quite get there for the previously discussed reasons there's another sort of anxiety about always going to the future to see like okay well will today be the day that i you know will i get what i need to get done today by the end of the day which is all very sort of opposite to an attitude of sort of curiosity and and presence and just like sort of seeing how things go it's totally understandable because many 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 people with greater or lesser degrees of justifiability think that their financial security their basic life fulfillment depends on being able to get through their to-do list by Friday afternoon or whatever. So it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not crazy, but I think it does ultimately sort of sap the value from life itself. There does seem to be something of the moment in the book as well. The, the fact that there's been probably an increased reflection on the way we're living and a rebalancing of our home relationships or our friends' relationships over the course of the last 12 months. And in fact, you know, I've seen an increasing number of younger people, maybe this has always been the case with younger people, but an increasing number of younger people questioning uh, whether the 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 systems and productivity and the obsession to get things done 
really serves their interests in the way that maybe millennials and, and, and Gen Xs never really question that. Um, so it, it just strikes me, it, it really seems like a timely book. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's funny. People do say it feels very timely. I, I will I will acknowledge that. And I'm always like, it's weird because I started writing it quite a few years ago now to sort of deal with my own demons. I finally got it finished when I got it finished, you know, after massive amounts of patience and uh, prodding from my editor. So it wasn't an act of sort of gracefully timing it to this to this moment in history. I think the pandemic has made all this stuff salient, as we were discussing in, in, a, in a new way. I also think that these kind of patterns that seem to be forces that seem to be modern in the sense that they are something that's happened with sort of industrialization and then consumer capitalism so modern but going back many 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 decades they do feel like they're reaching a sort of a reaching ahead at the moment in a way that can't be so easily ignored so i think that you know people have been trying to do an impossible amount for a long time but there's now uh, you get to the point where it really feels i think especially for younger adults that you absolutely have to do this impossible amount because that's just the terms of the job that you're in. And so it becomes much more widespread, becomes much more extreme. But certainly anecdotally, the sort of lowering of the age of which people report burnout, the idea that this used to be something that you might run into in your 50s if you were unlucky, and now it's like many, many people in their mid-20s talking about this kind of all-encompassing fatigue. So I think what's going on there in a broad sense is just that like things that were always a bit illogical and a bit unsustainable, and we're not pushing us in a very good direction, sort of reach a point where they feel like impossible to ignore. And like, now we've got all this technology that's supposed to, and these apps that are supposed to make everything so what runs so seamlessly and help us be so productive that we're not troubled by time anymore. And guess what? We use them and we get more stuff done and we are just as troubled by time as we, as we were before. Um, so in, all sorts of ways, it gets harder and harder to tell yourself that like, we're just on the verge of, of making this, this way of managing our lives and our work um, function properly for us, and that maybe it's time then instead to, to turn and look at what it is that we're doing. Just very quickly, I do want to acknowledge as well, though, that there is something to do with life stages, and I think there is something to do with like me being in my 40s and having tried these other things in my earlier adulthood. I would, I would you know... I'd accept it if somebody in their early 20s was like, no, no, I still plan to use all these methods of like, you know, hyper-efficiency to make leaps and bounds. And I'd say on some level, I'd say go for it. Just know that it doesn't get you all the way and that there might come a time when you need something additional or, or different. When you when you were talking about writing your book, you sort of mentioned that there was there was you know delays and and you hesitated from using the word procrastination, but there was sort of there was uh, <laughs> there was there was um, there, there was sort of you know there, there were moments of, of inner reflection and and you talk about there being sort of good forms of procrastination and bad forms of procrastination. I, I wonder if you could sort of distinguish between the two different forms. Well, I guess what I want to say about procrastination at the sort of the top level is just that like if you come up with a sort of rigorous definition of it, neglecting things that matter and that you know you want to make progress on, 
I think that's a workable definition for now. Like we're always doing it by definition as a result of being finite and having these infinite capacities for ambition and all the rest of it. So it's not a question of figuring out how never to neglect things that matter. It's obviously a question of figuring out which things to neglect and how to make progress on something. Uh, one thing that matters, uh, despite the fact that it will involve neglecting other things that matter. So that's really what I call good procrastination in the book, right? It's a question of consciously seeing that there will always be more things that feel like they matter than you can work on today, this month, this year, and then making good decisions. So, you know, I think that involves choosing small numbers of things to try to make real significant progress on rather than bouncing endlessly among sort of 20 different things. Uh, every time one gets difficult, you just move on to the next. So you never go through the necessary difficulties with with any of them. Um, and then I think the kind of paralyzing procrastination that I call bad procrastination is, is exactly the opposite. It's a sort of a refusal to acknowledge that there are these built-in limitations, that doing anything entails not doing other things, that nothing can ever be done perfectly uh, by the standards of your imagination, you know, and as a result, not getting in, not starting things, right? If you don't launch a creative project because you're worried it won't um, live up to your sort of perfect vision of it, you've sort of made a mistake because it definitely won't end up living up to your perfect vision of it because uh, because that that is that's what happens in the transition from the imaginative world to the material one where we actually do things and so if you sort of if you sort of hold off to from doing things to avoid confronting this situation that is in fact true for everybody all the time then yeah you've sort of made a mistake and what I what I always think is it's incredibly liberating to think not just like it's okay if this thing you're about to do doesn't turn out perfectly. Like, don't worry, you'll still be a good person. No, it's definitely not going to turn out perfectly. Like, that ship has sailed, and so you might as well just do it. I mean, I always think that's there's a certain kind of pessimistic motivation that I hope runs through this book, which is like all these perfect goals that you might have had, like you don't need to worry about them anymore because perfection is impossible and total mastery of time is impossible. And for that very reason, might as well just do some cool things in your work and in your life. Um, tell me this, we're sort of almost out of time. Um, how has the book been received? What sort of response have you got from people? I mean, this is totally self-selecting, right? Because people who are sort of bored by it probably don't, can't be bothered to send, <laughs> send me an right, email. Okay, yes. Mind you, People, if, if a lot of people hated it, I think they might let me know. I know I've been really, really amazed at the reactions. It's so, like, obviously, it's just the best kind of thing that can happen when you've sort of grappled with trying to put something like this into words, a perspective shift to get the sense that people are sort of resonating with that, that they're undergoing the perspective shift as a result of reading the book or that you're, the way they often say it, and I find really, really um satisfying you know that you're putting into words clearly something that they had already had intimations of and and um and been coming to understand and i think that in the best yeah i mean people talk about the book giving them permission to stop trying to struggle in certain impossible ways and and to focus instead on you know putting one foot in front of the other doing things that matter i always think that's really intriguing because like 
firstly, who am I to give anybody permission? That seems weird. And then secondly, mm. I guess it's permission, but it's also just like, I'm saying you don't have the option of doing the other thing. Like you don't have the option of becoming the mm. ultimate productivity machine. It won't work for systematic reasons. I guess it is permission, but it's also like you might as well do the, the thing that is really cool and possible with your life instead of constantly waiting for the moment when you can do the, the thing that is impossible. What really struck me is um, I've been to a few events in the last few weeks and, and it's really interesting, the the reappraisal that people have brought to their own life um, and their, willing to vocal, their willingness to vocalise it. So I went to a big event with professional services company, let's call it that, uh, and a couple of hundred people in the room mm-hmm. and one person in his similar life stage to yourself, uh, put his hand up and, and spoke to the chief exec and said, you know, my life is immeasurably better now than it was 18 months ago. I, I've, I've got to know my children's names. I, 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 I eat meals with the family. I'm not going back to the way it was before. And like a degree of gentle rebelliousness that you, you wouldn't have expected to hear from some someone, you know, 18 months ago. And Similarly, I've seen younger workers who've, and we've, we've, we've witnessed this in the sort of the big hazing consultancy firms and their workers have said, the way that you're working is unsustainable, unhealthy, and frankly insane. And we're not willing to do it. And so, so there does seem to be in, in a world where we're not collectivized and we're, we're not, we, we, we don't seek, uh, sort of strength in numbers. There does seem to be a willingness of people to say, actually there has been a moment of reappraisal and so in the context of that anyone who's even feeling a gentle sense of that themselves i think your book invites you to to firstly it's it's sort of a productivity book that's anti productivity book but will enable you to accomplish meaningful things which i think is sort of i guess the, the ultimate objective of productivity by self prioritization so a, a, a wonderful read and i can see why it was so so well received from people Thank you. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think the bit that interests me about that is like, I think there is this temporal dimension to, to what has caused people to want to rebel against their situation, right? Which is this kind of, well, if I'm not going to do this now, when am I going to do it? Which comes from a recognition of the finitude of our time. But also because in that previous existence in your job, if you really think, look at it closely, introspect closely, I think people in that situation, they wouldn't claim that things are going particularly that great in this moment, right? That it's always like, this is going to, this is going to pay off at some point. Like I'm not something wrong with my situation, but, but if, but if I just keep going, I'm going to make it and get there and and then it's going to be fine from then on. And I hope that my book is a little prod to me as well. I really need all this information, this advice, but like to, to see that like, no, actually that particular thing is not ever going to happen. And that I think frees you up wonderfully in the moment because it changes the stakes like the reason the stakes seem high to walking out of a position that you don't like or changing your way of life they are in a certain sense high but there's another sense in which they're lower than you thought which is that like this thing that you might have been hanging on for that's probably like a misunderstanding of being human in the first place for various reasons so like then it's like well why not make the change not like you've got to do this because you've got to fulfill your cosmic destiny but just like why not? Absolutely. Why not indeed? Fabulous. So grateful for the, the chance to chat to you. Um, and I love the book. And you're a brilliant audio book reader as well. Oh, which, thank you very uh, much. For, 
um, <laughs> which uh, which made it all the better. Brilliant. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, asking me, and thanks for thanks for the conversation. Thanks to Oliver. A really great discussion. And I have to tell you, you know, if you're looking for a book to recommend your mum get you for Christmas or a book to put on for a long car journey or just something to uh, stimulating read to keep you company. In fact, someone I know, true story of this, someone I know texted me a few weeks ago saying I'm reading Oliver Berkman's book and the next text I got from him said I've quit my job. So potentially life-changing. I would describe that evidence as correlative, not causal. That's one for the statisticians out there. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate your company as ever. Uh, If you do like this, feel free to get in touch or sign up to the newsletter. And you'll find that at the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 